Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of epistaxis from the ear, nose, and throat section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. An 8-year-old boy presents to the pediatric emergency department for a nosebleed. His symptoms began after he was hit in the face with a basketball. He denies any shortness of breath, hemoptysis, or hematemesis. Family history is unremarkable. On physical examination, there is small volume bleeding. He is asked to bend at the waist and press on his nasal ala. Hemostasis is eventually achieved. Now, let's get into the episode. As a quick introduction, epistaxis is defined as acute bleeding from the nasopharynx or the nose. In terms of epidemiology, as far as the demographics of epistaxis, this typically occurs in children or in the elderly, which is the most common. Risk factors include digital trauma to the nose, which is the most common, nasal mucosal drying, for example, dry air, rhinitis, septal deviation, coagulopathy, medications, for example, antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapy, or a foreign body. As far as the pathophysiology of epistaxis, this can be secondary to an anterior nosebleed or a posterior nosebleed. An anterior nosebleed involves damage to Kieselbach's plexus, which results in bleeding. Posterior nosebleeds involve damage to the posterolateral branches of the sphenopalatine artery, which can be severe and life-threatening. Associated conditions with epistaxis includes nasal trauma. As far as the prognosis of epistaxis, most nosebleeds are benign and self-limiting. Most cases of anterior epistaxis are responsive to local treatment. Moving on to the presentation of epistaxis, symptoms include bleeding from the nose. Anterior nosebleeds involve small volume bleeds, while posterior nosebleeds involve large volume bleeds. As far as the studies to obtain in the workup of epistaxis, you can perform nasal endoscopy, or serum studies in cases of severe bleeding, which includes a complete blood count, type and screen, as well as a PT-INR and an APTT. The differential diagnosis for epistaxis includes hemoptysis, hematemesis, as well as malignancy slash mass. Differentiating factors between hemoptysis and epistaxis is that hemoptysis will have blood with coughing and signs of respiratory distress. Differentiating factors between hematemesis and epistaxis is that hematemesis will have bloody emesis, history of gastrointestinal illness, for example, peptic ulcer disease, and melana. An example of malignancy slash mass includes a juvenile angiofibroma, which can be assessed with CT slash MRI. Moving on to treatment of epistaxis, this can be conservative and lifestyle management, medical and pharmacologic, or surgical and interventional. So starting with conservative and lifestyle management, examples include squeezing ala and bending at the waist, anterior nasal packing, and posterior nasal packing. The indication for squeezing the ala and bending at the waist is the initial management in anterior nosebleeds. Anterior nasal packing is performed in patients with presumed anterior nosebleeds when cautery fails. Posterior nasal packing is performed when hemostasis is not achieved with anterior nose packing. This increases the suspicion for posterior nosebleeds. Moving on to medical and pharmacologic treatment of epistaxis, the one to know is oxymetazoline, which is indicated as the initial management in anterior nosebleeds. Moving on to surgical and interventional management for epistaxis, the ones to know include cautery and endoscopic ligation or embolization. Cautery is performed when an anterior nosebleed is identified via rhinoscopy and conservative measures and oxymetazoline is unsuccessful. The modality for cautery can be chemical, for example, silver nitrate, or electrical. Finally, endoscopic ligation or embolization is performed after hemostasis is not achieved with posterior nasal packing. 
Finally, let's end this review session talking about some complications of epistaxis, and the ones to know include hypovolemia, as well as angina and myocardial infarction. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 55-year-old man presents to the emergency department with profuse bleeding from his nose. He states that it started 30 minutes ago while at a family picnic, and he has been unable to control the bleeding with external pressure and ice. The patient has a history of deep venous thrombosis and is currently taking a Pixaban. His temperature is 97.9 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.6 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 128 over 82 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 86 per minute. Respirations are 12 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Physical exam reveals blood leaking from the left nair. However, the volume makes it difficult to localize the source of bleeding. Packing soaked in tranexamic acid is placed in the anterior nair and the patient is observed. Roughly 30 minutes later, the packing is removed and there is no more bleeding. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's initial symptoms? And the choices are 1. External carotid artery 2. Facial artery 3. Kieselbach plexus 4. Maxillary artery and 5. Sphenopalatine artery. The correct answer to this question is 3. Kieselbach plexus. So this patient is presenting with epistaxis. Though the location cannot be visualized, the placement of packing soaked in tranexamic acid in the anterior nares, which subsequently leads to cessation of bleeding, suggests that this is an anterior nosebleed, which is from the Kieselbach plexus. To quickly review, epistaxis presents with bleeding from the nares. A majority of epistaxis is anterior and presents with bleeding from the nares that can be visualized with rhinoscopy. The most common cause of anterior epistaxis is local trauma to Kieselbach plexus secondary to digital trauma, cold weather, or dry air. The management of anterior epistaxis is to first perform a thorough physical exam, which includes having the patient thoroughly blow the nose to remove clots and blood. The nares should then be inspected, and if there is a single area of bleeding, it can be cauterized for immediate relief of symptoms. Other treatments include topical agents such as oxymetazoline, tranexamic acid, and nasal packing or nasal tampon. Usually, bleeding will stop in as quickly as 10 minutes. Persistent bleeding should warrant workup for coagulopathy or an alternative source of bleeding. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, external carotid artery is incorrect as the external carotid artery may give rise to the sphenopalatine artery, which is involved in posterior epistaxis but is too deep a vessel and is not routinely injured in epistaxis. Answer 2, facial artery, supplies the area of the mandible, lips, and just medial to the nose, but is not a common cause of epistaxis. This artery may be injured with penetrating trauma or lacerations to the face. Answer 4, maxillary artery, is incorrect, as this gives rise to the sphenopalatine artery, which bleeds with posterior epistaxis, but is not involved in anterior epistaxis, which is far more common than posterior nasal bleeds. Posterior epistaxis presents with more profuse, difficult-to-control bleeding. Finally, answer 5, the sphenopalatine artery is the most common artery that bleeds in posterior epistaxis, which presents with more profuse and difficult-to-treat bleeding than anterior epistaxis. Management includes treatment of coagulopathy, ensuring the patient is protecting the airway, topical agents such as tranexamic acid and oxymetazoline, and the placement of posterior nasal packing. Posterior nasal bleeding is significantly rarer than anterior nasal bleeding. To leave you with a bullet summary, anterior epistaxis presents with bleeding from the anterior nares and is commonly due to injury to Kieselbach's plexus. And moving on to the final question, a 67-year-old man presents to the emergency department with blood from his nose and coughing up blood. 
He states that it started yesterday intermittently and is now persistent and more severe. The patient has a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and alcoholism. His temperature is 98.7 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.1 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 164 over 88 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 113 per minute. Respirations are 15 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 96% on room air. Physical exam reveals active epistaxis in both nares, obscuring a thorough physical exam. The patient has two episodes of hematemesis while in the emergency department. Laboratory studies are as follows. Serum sodium is 140 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 101 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 4 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 25 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 40 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.3 milligrams per deciliter. And INR is 7. The patient is given factor replacement therapy and bilateral nasal packing is placed which appears to resolve the bleeding. Several minutes later, the patient vomits out a large amount of bright red blood mixed with what appears to be coffee grounds. His packing is removed and a deluge of blood leaks from the nares. The patient is subsequently intubated. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's bleeding? And the choices are 1. Carotid artery 2. Esophageal veins 3. Gastric veins 4. Kieselbach plexus and 5. Sphenopalatine artery The correct answer to this question is 5. Sphenopalatine artery So this patient is presenting with profuse epistaxis, likely secondary to the supertherapeutic INR, possibly from warfarin for his atrial fibrillation, that does not respond to nasal packing and is causing hematemesis. Given his failure to respond to appropriate treatment, it is likely a posterior nasal bleed of the sphenopalatine artery. To quickly review, epistaxis is generally a benign diagnosis as it occurs due to bleeding anteriorly from Kieselbach's plexus. Topical agents like oxymetazoline or tranexamic acid can be used to stop the bleeding or the bleeding vessel can be cauterized. Persistent bleeding can be compressed with nasal packing as well. On the other hand, posterior nasal bleeds from the sphenopalatine artery are more life-threatening. They present with more profuse and more persistent bleeding that is difficult to visualize. The same topical agents can be used to treat posterior epistaxis. However, posterior nasal packing should be placed to stop the bleeding rather than anterior nasal packing. These bleeds are more difficult to control and can be life-threatening, leading to hematemesis, and they may threaten the airway, requiring intubation. Further management should focus on correcting any underlying coagulopathy and transfusing as needed. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, carotid artery bleeding can occur with procedures such as drainage of a peritonsillar abscess, which presents with a large, fluctuant mass with uvular deviation and a muffled voice. A carotid artery bleed would lead to rapid exsanguination and would threaten the patient's airway, but is an unlikely cause of a posterior nosebleed. Answer 2, esophageal veins, and answer 3, gastric veins are incorrect, as esophageal veins that are dilated or esophageal varices could bleed in a cirrhotic patient. Patients would present with hematemesis and other sequelae of liver failure such as jaundice, ascites, palmar erythema, or spider angiomata. Immediate management is centered on intubation if needed to protect the airway, correction of coagulopathy with fresh frozen plasma or platelets as needed, octreotide, and esophageal banding of the varices. This patient has no stigmata of liver disease and his hematemesis is secondary to profuse posterior epistaxis. In cirrhosis, the backup of pressure can cause gastric veins to become dilated, otherwise known as gastric varices, cause hematemesis, and lead to profuse bleeding. Finally, answer 4, Kieselbach's plexus can bleed in anterior nosebleeds, secondary to digital trauma or dry cold weather. It is a more benign cause of epistaxis and usually resolves with nasal packing. 
To leave you with a bullet summary, posterior epistaxis presents with profuse bleeding and hematemesis that is difficult to control and occurs secondary to injury of the sphenopalatine artery. That's all for this review about epistaxis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.